0: Episode 66 of Off Script with Trish Vos: Intimate Interviews and Fun Conversations with Interesting People. In front of my microphone today is Eric Eisenberg. Hello, Eric.
1: Good morning, Trish.
0: Good morning. I've renamed you Dr. Eric Eisenberg because Eisenberg just has like a doctor sound to it.
1: It does. And where I come from, there's probably lots of Dr. Eisenberg, there you go. So I didn't quite get there.
0: Well, you are the director of dining services at the Rogue Valley Manor.
1: That is my current role, yes.
0: Okay, you have lots of letters after your name.
1: I do, and I'm going to add a couple more later in the week.
0: Ooh, uh, CEC and CCA. I'm assuming these are culinary certifications.
1: Ding, 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 ding. Well done.
0: Thank you. I did my research. Good. Just a touch. They they are
1: culinary uh, certifications through an organization called the uh, American Chefs Federation, or ACF, and the CEC is Certified Executive Chef. And the CCA is Certified Culinary Administrator.
0: Dang! I did not know I was in the presence of such greatness this morning.
1: You know, it's kind of a big deal.
0: (laughs) We are kind of a big deal, Dr. Eric Eisenberg. Um, I met you a couple weeks ago when we shot a West Coast Flavor segment. We're promoting the Oregon Wine Experience. Yes, Yes. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. We're also going to talk about your journey to the Rogue Valley Manor. Um, we talked a little bit about it on that the day of the shoot, uh, specifically in a Facebook Live. Um, fascinated that you, kind of where you've, you've come from and, and how you got here, which is why I wanted you on this podcast so I could share your life story with all of my listeners.
1: Well, we're definitely talking about my favorite subject, which is myself. <laughs> <laughs> just, just ask my wife.
0: Okay, cool. We're gonna get along great then.
1: Okay, good. Okay,
0: so where are you from originally, Eric?
1: Well, I grew up on the East Coast. I'm a Brooklyn boy. I, I was born and raised in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, the youngest of three sons. Okay. And uh, we moved to the suburbs when I was in elementary school.
0: Suburbs are where? like.
1: So just north of New York City. Okay. In, uh, in Westchester County.
0: Tree-lined streets.
1: Tree-lined streets. You know, it's funny. I took a trip back there recently and with my family to show my kids where I grew up. hmm and it was so small and kind of
0: mm-hmm.
1: meh, you know? And I just was really surprised. <laughs> I remember it being so grand. But it was, uh, at the time, it felt really big and really grand. And we, we had a really good life growing up in the suburbs.
0: Yeah. Well, because you're, you're tiny then. So maybe everything is this big around you. Our, our first house that I remember, my room was ginormous. Yeah. And then I know if I went back now, it would be so small.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny how that perspective changes, and I think your own perspective changes as you grow—not just physically, but emotionally and as a human. But yeah, so that was yeah. Let's let's hope hope so, right?
0: Um, so you grew up. You said that that you're the baby. I am the baby. That's why we have so much in common. I have this. I have yes. I have this theory. I've mentioned it a lot on this podcast. People are probably sick of it. I don't care. Older siblings, the oldest, they have a lot in common. They're usually overachievers and. You know, they have goals and very type A. I'm type A, too. But the babies are like, give me all the attention. You know, look at me. Watch me. Kind of an attention whore, I call it. Mm-hmm. I mean, were you that way? Totally. See? Yeah. See?
1: I mean, I remember doing little skits and stuff in the living room, you know, when... Uh... Ding, ding, ding. Hello. <laughs> right here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and my youngest now also. I have th- I, So I have three sons. Love it. So it's really quite an interesting legacy, and we're very much the same in that way. Although, you know, it's interesting. I see a lot of myself in all three of my kids, mm-hmm. but the little one definitely has that yeah. look at me, pay attention to me. I am the star right. of the show. Kind of. Let's that. hope
0: you see yourself and all of your children. Right? Yeah, <laughs> no scandals there. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, growing up with two brothers, two mm-hmm. older brothers, did you guys get along?
1: For the most part, we, they're a bit older than I am, so I was kind of that, oh. um, let's try for a girl, baby. <laughs> According, that was, that's what my mother always told me anyway. And uh, So I, there was a little bit of a gap, and they were often responsible for me, like my parents would go to the mm. theater, they would go out, and they would go into the city, and my brothers were kind of stuck. Uh, paying attention to me or having to babysit me. Sorry, guys. So there, there was a little bit of, a, I think, animosity there, a little bit. Mm. And then as we got a little older, my eldest brother and I, you know, when I was kind of in that post puberty, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 age, we were like cats and dogs. But um, right now, as we're all mm-hmm. old men, mm-hmm. uh, it's really, it's great. You Good. Know, it's, it's really a great relationship. We. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how that circles back. And I keep trying to tell my kids that. I'm like, you may get at each other's throats right now, but trust me, there is going to be a day when the three of you are all you have.
0: I was just going to say that same exact thing. So we definitely need to remember our siblings. Um, you moved to the suburbs when? How old were you?
1: Um, I want to say second or, th- yeah, second or oh, third grade. Oh, little. Yeah, okay. I, was, I was pretty little.
0: What did mom and dad do?
1: My parents were both educators mm. and both worked in special ed. And so my mother was a special ed teacher, and my father was a high school teacher uh, initially. And then as they grew in their careers, they were both administrators in the New York City Board of Education for uh, special education.
0: There is a special place for people who work in education, but special education, you have to have a lot of patience and a lot of heart.
1: Yeah, speaking of a big deal, my dad was the... um, executive director of special ed for the city of New York. Wow. Um, Well, he's assistant, actually. And he was instrumental back in the early 70s for really developing the whole concept of mainstreaming special ed children Mm. into public school. It really started, there was a high school, um, Edward R. Murrow High School in New York that was an arts school. And he was put in charge initially of uh, developing that school as a special ed school altogether Wow um, for only, only special ed kids. And he said he would only do it if he could create a school in which kids were mainstreamed. And that really was the, he was really the pioneer in developing that kind of program. And that's what we know today, right? We would never think of cloistering a special needs child in a, in, in a school, a whole mm-hmm. building by themselves, and um, I'm really proud to say, I really just learned this recently too, by the way, um, I'm really proud to say that, that that's a legacy that my father left that I'm super proud of and, and feel like that's the kind of thing I can tell uh, my kids about yeah. their grandfather, who they never met, by the way, so.
0: A little ahead of his time, really. Oh,
1: yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's, that's the whole thing about pioneering, right? You wanna be remembered for to, maybe it's not that you want to be remembered, but you will be remembered for doing something groundbreaking. And uh, I'd say there's a little bit... I, that's also the type of personality, I think, in that look-at-me, look-at-me type of mm-hmm. child that we were mm-hmm. where you want to say, hey, "You know, not only do I want people to recognize me, but I want them to recognize me for doing something important.
0: Oh, my gosh. I'm, I'm honestly... It's so funny you said that. I'm going through that at this very moment in life as far as... What do I want to do with myself that I can leave a stamp somewhere, even if it's a small stamp, but do, doing something positive and putting something out there in the world that people like and appreciate? It's like a public service. Almost. It is. It I think is. of that. That's funny you said that. I'm, I'm going through. I'm I'm going through all of that right now in in my life. Um. So I was going somewhere with this. So they were both educators. Did they essentially retire from the education system?
1: They did. My father, fortunately, was able to retire really young because he started really young. So he was 54
0: or so when
1: he retired. And then he got into the antique business. So he schlepped around all over the suburbs and all over the city, and he would go to um, estate sales. We didn't call them garage sales in, in Westchester. No. No. In Westchester, they, they, they were estate sales. Exactly. And he would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and go wait in line. And he had quite, uh, our whole basement and entire garage was filled with banana boxes, filled with, he dealt in china and glassware and that kind of thing. Okay. So that was a big part of my sort of late teenage years. Uh, was going around with my dad to antique shows mm-hmm. and helping him set up and break down and all kinds Fine. of stuff. So that was pretty cool. And my mother, unfortunately, um, she did retire, but due to health concerns. And I did lose both of my parents when they were fairly young, and I was fairly young. So they have not been around for you know going on 25 years now. So it's it's been an interesting experience not having them in my life, but yet they were both such incredible people mm-hmm. that I remember in my mind anyway mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, they have stayed with me. And, and that's one of the things I think about as a parent myself is really trying to create a, a memory, I guess, for my kids so that when I'm gone, whenever that happens, hopefully not for a very, very long time, but that uh, they'll have a, a memory of me like I have of my folks.
0: Well, yeah, it's and I'm sure... It sounds like that was pretty difficult losing them.
1: It was. I was in my twenties.
0: Oh, that's really young. Yeah,
1: and my mother was sick for a very long time, mm-hmm. and my dad was sick for a very short time. But it was right after my mother passed away, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer, and um, and then died within a year. So wow. it was really, uh, it was a trying. It was trying times, as you can imagine, oh, as bet. someone just coming to grips with their own adulthood, and it, it was interesting.
0: Well. It's I, I am. It's nice to hear that you carry them with you, just as far as memories and stories, because um, really, that's that's all you have left, really.
1: Yeah, I'm at the age now where many of my parent, many of my friends' parents are kind of at the age where they're starting to pass away, and we've experienced right. that quite a bit in the last few years. And my mother-in-law passed away this year, and. Uh, I feel like the the best advice I can offer in that time of such despair and dismay cuz it feels like there's no way through it when that you're experiencing it yourself mm-hmm. even if your parent is very very ill for a while you know there is a sense of relief but it's still such a great and deep loss and and I feel like the only thing that I can really offer and the thing that has really stuck with me because now I'm 25 years past mm-hmm. it Is that there comes a time when all of the pain and all of the the discomfort and all of the challenges that you dealt with in in losing them, up to the time of losing them, it fades away over time, and all you're left with is everything that you loved about them.
0: That's very hopeful.
1: And it really, so now you know when I, as I already have today, you know when I talk about my parents, it's just it's, I remember them as being perfect people. Like there was, I never. I never yelled at them, I hate you. Exactly.
0: You know, get out of my
1: room, which of course I did. And I mean, all of the stuff that we, you know, you experience with your parents, we all experience with our parents, you know, after the, after their loss, you're left with only the, the best stuff. Yeah.
0: And, and I wonder if that's your brain's way of just flushing out that negative and really holding on to the positive of, of what you loved about them. Yeah. Was food a thing in your house growing oh, up?
1: Yeah, big time. Okay, how yeah. so? My dad was um, a gourmand, just like I was. We loved to eat and um, loved good food. Did they cook? Oh, my, dad, my mother was a good cook. My dad was a great cook. Okay. And, um, you know, my mother grew up in a extremely orthodox Jewish household okay. where when we had to go to Grandma Yeda's house, it was torture because we knew it was the boiled chicken that was from the pot of soup that the, and kosher chickens back in the day, I mean, they still had like feathers around the feet and stuff. It was just disgusting. And so we, the cousins and I and you know, my brothers, we would be at my grandma's house and we knew it was, oh my God, it's the boiled chicken in the saltless, you know, chicken broth. Oh,
0: Grandma with, Yetta.
1: And it was just, she was such a terrible cook. And that was what my mother grew up with. Right. So it wasn't until I, she met my dad that she was kind of ex, got to experience, mm-hmm. you know, food. My father um, grew up with a younger sister and a single mother, mm. and so he was very self-sufficient and knew how to cook and sew and Also all,
0: Jewish household? Also
1: Jewish household. Okay. Again. And although ultra-Orthodox, zero faith. You know, it was like oh, culturally wow. Jewish somewhat, sure. but not religious in any way, shape, or form. In fact, you know, the traditional bar mitzvah for boys is at 13. Mm. My father never had one, so he had one at 62.
0: Good for him.
1: <laughs> um, so he kind of found religion later in life, as my mother was kind of letting it go. It was Isn't kind of interesting., you know, it was an interesting, interesting situation. but um, so my, my father loved to love to eat, and I have so many great food memories with my father, uh, all the things that he exposed me to, and he also loved to entertain. So he was also an entertainer. He had sort of a theatrical background as well. And he was sort of that life of the party kind of person.
0: Oh, man. I love this man. And
1: bigger than life. He really, you would have loved him. What was his name? Donald. Donald. Donald Eisenberg. And he, everybody loved him. He was one of those unilaterally loved people. One one of the memories I have is that we would be in New York City walking down the street. And this would happen all the time. Mr. Eisenberg! You were my theater teacher at Lafayette High School in 1950. And they would remember him, so many people. Of in the middle of a city of millions, he was always recognized. It was such an amazing, uh, and that was one of the things I always, I'm like, wow, I just want to touch people that way. Anyway, mm-hmm. he, uh, he loved food, and we were always entertaining in my house, and there was always, we were always having company. Company was coming over, and there were always just platters of amazing food and things Cooking, and I just remember a few of the dishes that he was really well known for. He made a lasagna that was a mile high. This thing was unbelievable with every conceivable meat and cheese and Mm. crusty around the edges, and it Mm. was just phenomenal. Um, And then also some cultural dishes, like it won't sound good to you, like if I say he made an amazing stuffed cabbage, but sounds amazing, but there was just some he just loved to be in the kitchen and loved to have people in his home and loved to have people around and, and that was really sort of the basis that started it all.
0: Oh, me. I I'm picturing martinis too at these company gatherings.
1: Scotch on the rocks, but yeah.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, there so was always classy. a tumbler
1: filled with ice with something so in it. So
0: classy. So yeah. this is kind of where it started for you was food a theme for you growing up then? Like uh, even going into to college or what did you want to do?
1: Well, so food is a theme through life just again as Jews it's it's much yes. it's a cultural where food is connected to every celebration. So <laughs> right. there's always food around, you know, not just and a lot of just weekday meals. I remember my mother always feeling like she I I always remember my, my mother putting something on the table which is something we don't even really do today. My kids mm-hmm. are always grazing and we're always grazing.
0: Mm-hmm. And that
1: might just be the pace at which we live today, but Right. Um, I always remember there being something on the table that felt special, even on a Wednesday. But um, food was not my thing. I was going to go into the theater. I I was encouraged by my parents even as well, um, because my dad sort of had an unrealized dream of being in the theater himself, Mm. and so he was very encouraging. And uh, so I went to college to, you know, all through high school I did theater, and all through college I was a theater major in college and had a very... I went to a small school so I had a very uh, prolific theater e- experience because there were so few people around. So it was really great that was to smart. be smart. It was really <laughs> great. I mean, I, I had applied to other schools, which I didn't get into, but I ended up in a small liberal arts college that had you know, I had the opportunity to be on main stage productions, you know, my first semester as a freshman. So wow. it was really it was really I, I got to do a lot of theater in college. But I also needed work-study. I needed some money while I was Mm in school, so I I worked. Um, I'll rewind just a touch to say I went to a boarding school for high school. Okay. Um, Also a very unique and weird experience in that it was a Quaker school, a friends-run school. And it's because I had a lot of trouble in school, in public school, Mm -hmm. in in sort of a big suburban high school where there were over 3,000 students, and I just was... Lost? Yeah, I wasn't doing well. I was... uh, Get you know following all the wrong paths. Were you and getting
0: into trouble?
1: I was getting into trouble, Uh-oh. and so I ended up in boarding school. And it, you know, I I don't want to make it sound like it was prison. It was not. It was a very liberal kind of environment, really honestly run by hippies, and it was it was it was really cool in a lot of ways. And it helped me to find who I am as a person. I mean, a lot that I learned there, I I still carry with me, uh, and. So I we had to work there, too. So that was part of our school, is that we had to kind of have a job around the school. And mine was working in the dining hall as a interesting, dishwasher.
0: Interesting, interesting.
1: And the dishwasher led to helping, you know, Fred the cook, peel potatoes. And then it was it was just those, because I had done that at home as a kid. So I just had more interest in that than washing dishes or doing yard work or whatever else mm-hmm. they wanted us to do. Mm-hmm. So I really had this introduction to working in a, Commercial kitchen, you know, in high school. So I went to college and I needed work study. That was what I did. I went and got a job as a dishwasher in the dining hall, which led to becoming the chef's assistant. And then I went to, then I was the short order cook in the student union. Awesome. And so just all of those things kind of progressed to the point where then I graduated from college and I got to New York City and here I am with a degree in theater performance and lighting design in one hand. Okay. And uh, this ability to work behind a stove in the other.
0: So it's, you're a typical actor then, yeah. right?
1: Although, you know, my <laughs> girlfriend at the time, I had a, so I got a job as a cook right away in a pretty nice restaurant that my dad hooked me up with. And uh, I ended up quitting that job because my girlfriend at the time, who was also a, a would-be actress, said... You know, if you're going to be an actor, you have to be a waiter, so you have a more flexible schedule, and you can get out and go on auditions. And you're mm-hmm. wasting your life working in the kitchen and <laughs> and all of this. And so, um, I did that. I left. Um, I left working in the kitchen of this really nice restaurant called the Manhattan Ocean Club, and I ended up working at the Marriott Marquis in Times Square. Mm. And I got a job. They were on a massive hiring. Um, campaign because they were just, oh, they were building the hotel. So this was in 1985 and or 86. And I got a job working in a restaurant, a buffet restaurant in just above Times Square in the theater district in this massive, incredible hotel, which at the time was the only thing in Times Square. It was still a complete and utter hole. Like, t- you know, today it's like an amusement park, but it then is. it was disgusting. <laughs> And I actually lived just a couple of blocks from there as well. And it was some of those early early four o'clock in the morning trips home, you know were were pretty incredible. <laughs> but uh, so th- this job, again, and just because of the I guess the nature of who I am, that job led to a job in a much fancier restaurant in the top of the building when they opened that and got to wait on lots of celebrities. and it was really it was the place to be in nineteen eighty six, although, The revolving restaurant on the top of the Marriott Marquis today, you know, doesn't sound like it's the place to be, and it probably (laughs) is not, but when it opened, it it truly was. Well, sure. It it was quite a hot spot. So we did that for a few years and um, made a ton of money at that age of my life, and it was just really, really stupid. But there was always something, like it just never fit. It, Mm -hmm. It was never the right fit for me. and. I ended up going into management because I wanted, again, I wanted something more, and I ended up managing the bars in the hotel. Um, one of many managers of these giant bars in the lobby, and they overlook Times Square. So you can imagine mm. a couple of New Year's Eves, you know, on this bar that revolves and it's sitting oh, over there. Man. It was, it was, it, it was a good time to be in your early twenties, you sure. know, working in New York City, making you know, some making good money, making good money, and right. it, it, it was all pretty cool, but. The kitchen just kept calling me back, you know.
0: Did the, did this dream of being in theater was it fading at this point?
1: It was it was morphing, you know, because I like I believed it could happen, but I I got involved in a couple of small black box things and you know off 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 Broadway things and um, these little you know, black hole theaters that you find all over New York right. involved in really crazy productions of stupid things. And no one was nice, and everybody was mean and challenging, and it was a re- it was so cutthroat and so mm-hmm. dog-eat-dog. Everything I loved about the theater, just I couldn't find. I, didn't, I guess I didn't have the wherewithal to really withstand all that. Like right. it wasn't – I didn't – I loved doing it, but I didn't love it enough – to be abused, to to, pursue it. And
0: you have to love it enough.
1: Yeah, you really do.
0: Well, and there's something to be said about being in a kitchen as a chef is very theatrical. And it's your talent on display in front of this person. And they're either gonna love it or they're gonna hate it and they're gonna critique the crap out of it.
1: You know, it's funny, I never made that correlation before. But yes, that's true. I mean, today there's this whole Chef as celebrity kind of thing that didn't exist when I got into cooking. I mean, yeah. it was a, it was a vocation. Right. It was just starting to, you know, have a little more of a cachet. The Food Network had not even been born yet. Like it was not something people didn't. You know, you watch Julia Child of and course. you watch Graham Care and the the Cajun guy who I uh,
0: uh, Jason.
1: I can't remember his Wilson? name. J- yeah, J- Justin Wilson. Justin. Justin Wilson, right. And his onion and a pinch of this and pinch of that, pinch of that. Um, th- that was it. Like that's what you watched on TV. So for cooking. comforting, though. And and I did watch all of that. Same here. Yeah. So, um, but it was, but it wasn't like I got into being into cooking because there was the potential of celebrity. I'll say that I've been chasing that dragon tail mm-hmm. since mm-hmm. food has become sort of a, a uh, entertainment form. But uh, it's not really been something that was the the focus of uh, why I got into cooking. I thought it was super creative. It was really hard, mm-hmm. like working in a I ended up going back to the same restaurant I left to go work at the Marriott. Um, I went back to the Manhattan Ocean Club several years later uh, to work for a different chef there at that point, this English guy, um, and he, that was when I really sort of said, this is a creative art form. This is a way I can express myself creatively. I can, it, it, it is as passionate and as physical as any combat scene in any theatrical production anyone's ever, in. more For so, sure.
0: yeah.
1: um, there is a camaraderie, much like the theater that you cannot deny in a kitchen. I mm-hmm. mean, it is, again, especially at that time, Um, So there are a lot of correlations I actually have never thought of until just now. Trish, thank you so much.
0: You're welcome. That's why I'm here. (laughs) So when do you go, at this point in your life, are you thinking, I want to go to chef school?
1: So I'm now working for um, the chef in New York, and he is inspiring me to be better and do more and i am i'm a line cook now for a number of years in a row mm-hmm. and i'm burned up my arms and i'm really trying to find a way to do something more so you're doing it right yeah I'm tr- <laughs> but i'm trying to find a way to excel and i just couldn't get another job without having some kind of culinary training formally okay even though cuz everything i'd gotten at that point had just been mm-hmm. in in the kitchen and uh, so he made the suggestion that I go to France, and he was gonna be able to hook me up with, it's an apprenticeship, but in, in the culinary world, we call those a, a stage, you're, in a, you're a stagiaire when you go to France to have a, an apprenticeship. So he was gonna help me find a, a restaurant to have a stage in in Paris, and he connected me with a restaurant uh, not far from the Arc de Triomphe, in the 13th arrondissement, called uh, Le Petite Marguerite, and it's run by these three brothers, one guy up front, and two brothers in the kitchen. Two, It, it was like dueling pianos, right? These two mm-hmm. stoves facing each other, Ooh. and it was tiny kitchen. Maybe, I, mean, I don't know if everybody can, you can't see this room, but it's 10 by 10, basically. This little tiny kitchen, these two guys just facing each other rattling off stuff all night long. And a couple of apprentices and like me, you know, just scurrying around them, trying to get it all done. In
0: French. In- in,
1: all in French. And I didn't speak a word of French. Of course. And uh, it was amazing. Like, it was the most amazing experience. And, you know, you think about family meal, and we would all sit down together and have a meal. And I was introduced to foods I had never seen before and mm-hmm. ate my first pig's foot, uh, <laughs> which I loved at the time. Not something I eat regularly now, but something I remember fondly. And maybe it was just because it was – I remember them all looking at me and me staring at the plate and them all laughing at me. Uh, but it was just one of those – again, it was it was an affirming experience that said, uh, you're in the right place, doing the right thing. That's at, amazing. At the right time.
0: So, again, three brothers, so three sons.
1: Interesting. That's another correlation, That's yeah. crazy, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, and then – I was going somewhere with this. You're going to school at the same time you're doing this apprenticeship.
1: Well, I didn't plan to go to school.
0: Oh, you were just going to do the apprenticeship. Right. Okay. Um, Also, before we go any further, I I watch Chef's Table all the time, so Mm -hmm. I think I'm pretty much
1: a chef. (laughs) Yes, of course. Of
0: course. Um, Family meal. That's like the thing that the whole, essentially, the kitchen does before you open or after? Before. Before. So everybody kind of like... In between,
1: sir. And... and, and Depends, like, so in France, you know, at the time when I was working in, this is now the late 80s, and I'm I'm working in, um, I'm working in France, and you work all day. Like, yeah. you go in early in the morning, you get ready for lunch, you have lunch service, then family meal, gotcha. then you have dinner service, and then you go out to the bar.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So, you, you weren't planning on going to school. Correct. How did that happen then?
1: I was at... A hostel in um Paris somewhere it's a long time ago, thirty plus years ago um, and there was a thing on a message board where they needed chef's assistants who could speak English
0: oh okay
1: and so I went down there. And it really was to be, so I went to the Cordon Bleu uh, mm-hmm. in Paris, which is was at the time a very it was the one and only. They were they hadn't expanded out and done all this licensing and everything else. Um, small little place, and then on uh, Rue Leon Delome. I'll never forget it. And uh, really cute. And I walked in, and I said I speak English, but not much French. <laughs> um, and they said that didn't matter because you just really kind of needed to be an interface between. Um, you know, the English-speaking students and and the chefs. Okay. But um, not necessarily, and that there was a translator in most of the classes, but they, for whatever reason, I ended up being able to get this job as a a chef's assistant, and I exchanged it for um, my schooling.
0: Fantastic. And
1: I I ended up having to, you know, pay some tuition, and it, it wasn't like a full free swap, but... I didn't really go to France planning to go to Cordon Bleu. I really was gonna go for three months, do this stage, Mm -hmm. go back to New York, have that on my resume as French experience and and be done, Mm -hmm. because that was was the gold standard at the time. I mean, 1987, 1988, you had, I worked in France, in Paris, on your resume. You're hired. Yeah, you're hired. So um, that was really the plan, and I ended up going, went to school for about a year and a half program, and uh, worked in, the Petite Marguerite, which was uh, a one-star Michelin restaurant and ended up working at a couple of other m- much nicer restaurants. The most notable is a restaurant called Michel Rostein, which is uh, a two-star Michelin restaurant um, that has two restaurants in one. One, a very upscale, high-end, fine-dining restaurant, and then this other cute little bistro, which is connected, and the kitchen's mm-hmm. kind of meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. The one thing I loved about that ex- that restaurant was that it was, it was debilitatingly difficult when you worked in the fine dining part of the restaurant, and you had to be on pins and needles every second of every day. But one day a week, they put you in the bistro, so you got a break. It's one like day, a
0: breath of fresh you air. You did.
1: You got to go into the bistro and you were alone, one man kitchen by yourself, mm. and you'd do about you know sixty or some um, covers a night. And, but it was, like, just the most simple, comforting, but deliciously amazing food.
0: Like?
1: Um, something I still love to make today is this, is this gratin. But they, they, they refer to it. It's really macaroni and cheese, but it was a, a gratin de macaroni, right? Mm. And it was uh, penne pasta with uh, uh, really delicious bacon mm. and gruyere cheese and lots of cream.
0: Ugh.
1: And it's... um,
0: My heart just fluttered a bit. (laughs) This sounds so romantic.
1: It is romantic. It was... These are romantic times. I mean, I just think about... I'm 26 years old. I'm tooling around Paris on my mobilette, my moped, you know, and I'm... To get to where I from where I lived to where I worked, I had to go right through the center of Paris, around the arc. I mean, I was driving around the Arc de Triomphe on my moped to get to work every day. I would go early in the morning and work, and I would have a little break at lunchtime, and I'd go take a little nap on a park bench nearby, and go back to work. And you know, I had wow. no responsibilities other than going and working in the kitchen every day. And it was, and every day was a, there was something to discover. Like it never was a drudge at all, ever. Yeah. Um,
0: flirting with Parisian women. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know. Oh, we know, Eric.
1: <laughs> I was working too much, to be honest. I really well, I was going to ask. I really did didn't you have time. Not really. No, mm-hmm. to be honest, I really didn't have a whole lot of social time. Um, until I went, I left Paris and went and worked, um, in the, uh, terrain, the, uh, terrain region of, uh, of France which is more more central and uh, I worked in a hotel there where we had we still worked morning till night but there was a group of us we were more carousing I would say we would because we were kind of cloistered in the in the country we would
0: mm-hmm. go to
1: the most nearby town and
0: mm-hmm. pirates of the kitchen
1: Pirates yes indeed yeah. that's a really good way of describing yes. it Yes <laughs> okay
0: how long were you in France
1: just about five years altogether.
0: Wow. Yeah. So you ended up speaking
1: French. Oh, yeah, French. yeah.
0: Very much. So are you fluent still?
1: Well, you know, I left France it's 30 years ago, so right. I'm going to go no. Okay. But if I...
0: Your accent's lovely.
1: If I... I'll tell you a funny story about that. But if I were to get into a French conversation now, I would stumble a lot. But if I did it regularly, I'm pretty sure I could pick up. Oh, yeah. Up. It i would come pick, back. It, pick it back up. Because I was—I mean, I was French-speaking. I was living a life in French, and that was—that was also a gift. That was really, really cool. But so, I another job that I had was while I was going to school before I ended up going out to um, to the Loire Valley. I was uh, working two summers. I worked at a private chateau for the Count and Countess de Rohan-Chabot, and these were. These two Bohemian, he was an antique dealer and she was an artist, and they were count and countess in title only. They were, like, they were really like you and me. They were just the most down-to-earth, mm-hmm. coolest people. Mm-hmm. And my buddy Bruce and I um, had, I don't, I don't even remember how we got, I think school must have hooked us up with it somehow, but we ended up going and working for them at their private chateau in Auvergne, which is where all the best blue cheese comes from. And so this is here's another three brothers story. Down the road from the chateau was this little dairy farm run by three brothers. That is
0: a theme in your life.
1: It is, and we used to go down there every morning and get fresh milk, still warm, in the metal can, and we'd schlep it back up to the house. Crazy. Um, and those we had a garden that was over an acre, that was tended by the the groundskeepers of the chateau. It had every vegetable, berry, fruit you can imagine. It was a it was a young cooks. Dream And we didn't have any responsibilities during the week because they were never there. They would only come up on the weekends. And so during the week, like, their sons would be there every once in a while or somebody would be visiting. And on the weekends, the place would fill up with, you know, mm-hmm. about 20 different guests that would stay at the Chateau. And we would cook all weekend like like maniacs. But we would go out in the morning and have our espresso and pick from the garden it was just
0: that just sounds stupid an amazing time (laughs) just sounds dumb
1: so where was I going with this? I got lost
0: well that story would be even better if you said the garden was tended by like Buddhist monks or something (laughs) that would have made that story really good I I was talking about your accent
1: oh right so when I was so when I was in Auvergne I was so there were quite a few um upscale visitors even though they themselves were very down to earth and I'm not to name drop, and not that you guys oh, will know these names name anyway. Drop. But like, um, you know, François Dahl, who is the founder of Nestle and L'Oreal, he was one mm. of their regular guests. The former president of France, you know, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, was one of their normal regular guests. So these were the kind of people that they were rubbing elbows with. But, um, but those were the kind of folks we were cooking for um, over the weekends. But I remember talking to somebody, one of the guests that had come up from the week, you know, on a weekend, and they. And we were having a conversation full on, you know, in French. And just out of the blue, I, and I don't remember who this person was, but, I, but what they said stuck with me because he said, you know, oh, you, you speak very well, but you can tell that you learned all of your French in Paris.
0: Hmm.
1: And at that moment it dawned on me that I was speaking French like, with a Brooklyn accent, you know what I mean? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that, you know, so you think about that Canarsie or that, you know, hey, you guys, you know, kind of Brooklyn thing. And I really, it, it never occurred to me. I thought I had this wonderful accent and it was all coming out so perfectly. <laughs> yeah. But no, I was talking like, you know, a kid from Canarsie. And...
0: That's pretty classic, Yeah, was actually. Good. So you're in France for five years, just living the good life. Do you look back on that and just go... I almost can't believe that happened to me. Yeah. It just sounds, it just sounds dumb. It sounds crazy. Yeah, it
1: was, and it was long enough ago that it really does feel like a dream sometimes.
0: Oh, that just, yeah, yeah, that's just sound, it sounds so romantic. When do you decide to come home and why? Why do you come home?
1: My mother was at the end of her life and I, I had every intention of coming home to see her um, and go back and never, and never return honestly that was really my plan. You fell in love with? And and I was really actually gonna go from France to Japan. That was my, that was my plan. Wow. Um, I met a lot of really cool Japanese people in France and at the time French cooking in Japan was like huge. Yeah, forget about it. It it was like if you wanted to be a French chef Mm -hmm. you really needed to go to Japan. It Mm -hmm. would not even be in France anymore. You wanted to, if you were gonna take it to the next level and so that was really my plan. but I came home, and my mother passed, and my father got sick, and you know, one thing leads to another. And, and you were here, and I was here. Yeah.
0: So, in well, New- I was in
1: New York. Anyway. In New York. In New yeah. York.
0: Um, when do you meet your wife?
1: When I moved to Seattle.
0: Okay, so let's then back up. Mm-hmm. Um, how long are you in New York after both of your parents pass away?
1: Right after my father died, I moved to Seattle. Why? I had friends that moved that I kind of grew up with. And when I say grew up, I mean we spent our early twenties together, mm-hmm. um, folks that I met when i we opened the Marriott, and we were i mean talk about pirates of the kitchen I mean we were pirates of the city, we were twenty somethings with our pockets bulging with money Love in it. the early eighties, and it was just
0: you were making it rain
1: oh God it was, it was these <laughs> talk about a dream or a haze uh, it was it was really um these were incredible times i mean we t- we had a lot of free time we worked at night you know we had we would go to restaurants when they weren't busy because we were working busy nights so we mm-hmm. would go um, we'd go to the best restaurants and spend all of our money and we'd buy nice clothes and get all dressed up and it was just really that was really when i solidified this sort of you know restaurants are our life like where you go how you what you do in a restaurant, how you eat and how you sort of
0: mm-hmm.
1: go through that experience is, is what I, I want to always be involved in that.
0: I pride myself on being a good orderer of the menu. That's, um, if we ever go out with friends, usually my husband's sweet enough to just say, hey, let Trish do it. I, I just, I love it and I'm good at it. And I agree with you. I think restaurants and food are life. I, I really do.
1: And at that time, we were just, you know, we, we were living high on the hog.
0: Awesome.
1: Um, so you know that was that was what we were. You know, that was my sort of. That, that's where life was, and that's all that really mattered to me at the time. What were we talking about, Trish?
0: You moved to Seattle. I moved to Seattle right? with these with, with these, these other people, pir- right? these pirates. With
1: my other pirates. So my they um, they moved to Seattle a couple years before because I had a friend that always wanted to be a winemaker, Ooh. and so Washington again burgeoning kind of wine um, Mm -hmm. culture growing there at the time and he went and worked at um, a couple of big-name wineries and then uh, got into wine sales and I just was I needed something different I had just lost my parents my brothers and I were kind of butting heads and I was just like you know let's um let's put some distance between that life and my new life and um I had inherited a little bit of money. You know, my father had some life insurance, so I had a little bit of money, and I went to Seattle really to look to open a restaurant with this buddy of mine. Okay. And um, that's what we did. You and did. so we, I went to Seattle. It was literally months, a couple months after my, my father passed. And uh, the the plan was to find a little space somewhere in downtown Seattle and just kind of open a little neighborhood bistro and mm-hmm. call it good. And somehow (laughs) I ended up connected to uh, a realtor who knew a French chef who was, it wasn't advertised or known to anyone, but he wanted to sell his restaurant. And I didn't know anything about this guy because I was new to the area, but, you know, little did I know he was the quintessential Hmm. chef, had been the most famous chef in the area since 1971. You know, it was like, and he was selling his world-renowned Girard's Relais de Lyon in Bothell, which was just outside of Seattle. Wow. So I went up there to look at it, and I was immediately transported back to France. Mm. It was a little house. It was so cute, and it was so perfect. And then you walk through these doors into the kitchen. And behind this little house is a building bigger than the house. That's all kitchen. Oh, It was like every chef's dream. And that's what he did. He built his dream kitchen. And, you know, copper pots lining the walls. The multiple, you know, uh, island-type stations with chefs all around. And and I immediately was like, this is it. Like, this is where... this is where I'm this is it. We're going to do this. And um so we worked out some terms and I and I bought the restaurant from Gerard. Wow. And he ended up hanging out with us for a little while and he would greet customers at the door for a while and um he really helped us transition. He introduced us to uh, a guy named John Hinterberger who was the big time restaurant critic in the Seattle Times during during those during that period and um who ended up being uh very I don't know if he, if it was, I want to say it was well-deserved, but he was also very generous and really was, uh, gave us some great reviews, ended up with uh, three and a half stars in the Seattle Times, and it was, again, another magical time where I was just, it had taken everything that I had done to that point, and I got to do it whatever I wanted. Like, there was no, I didn't, have to do anything anybody else said i could do only the things that i wanted God, to do that feels
0: good doesn't it
1: yeah if i have any regrets it would be that i if i have a single regret in my life it's that we sold the restaurant because there was a level of freedom there that mm-hmm. i've never experienced mm-hmm. before and never experienced since
0: did the former owner work with you in the kitchen at all ever
1: no no not really Just and it. i didn't i didn't feel like i needed him to it's <laughs> It's interesting because when I first bought the restaurant, it was very important to him that we closed the deal before October because he knew he made like 40% of his money through the holidays. So if you look at through you know Christmas and New Year's mm-hmm. and uh, Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. kind of, that was mm-hmm. like his, his sweet spot cause it was a very romantic, beautiful little place. And um, he had a whole team of people that worked there. He had a chef, the cuisine, that ran the kitchen, really. And he was more of a figurehead. He had kind of retired at that point anyway. Right after it kind of got out that we, the restaurant had been sold to this kid from New York. (laughs) Uh, The internet was brand new at the time. And there was a uh, a chat room.
0: (laughs) Remember those? Oh, gosh.
1: (laughs) There was a chat room called Seattle Eats. And... Within days, the buzz on Seattle Eats was, "Oh my gosh, don't go to Girard's! They've destroyed it." What is this kid who wants to go eat, you know, French food from some kid from New York?
0: So the internet was uh, nasty back then uh, too. Uh,
1: it started with trolls. That's the whole reason it became even a thing. And uh, but the really funny thing was, they dissed everything. It was like they're using the wrong. The china's mismatched, and they served me the wrong silverware with this thing, and they gave me the wrong wine glass for my Bordeaux, and all, oh and the gosh. sauce was broken. And it, I was wow. doing, I was doing nothing but signing checks at that point. It was all the same crew. It was all the same Interesting. recipes. It was all still Gerard. It was everything about the restaurant was exactly the same. I hadn't touched a thing, and I hadn't planned to until all the holidays were over because we had all these reservations and people were coming for what they expected. For what, yes. Right. And, well, that hurt Gerard's feelings, as one can imagine.
0: Of course it did.
1: Because he was like, this what are you talking life. about? I know he didn't do anything. This is all still what we were. So I think that's kind of why he reached out to the community. Um, and, uh, but it turned out in the end to be a really positive experience. We got a, after that, we got a lot of great press and... I believe on our own merits, you know, achieved a lot of really great accolades from every every outlet you know that was available at the time.
0: What were some of your favorite things you were cooking in this time? Was it french food at this restaurant? it
1: was it was okay. a very it was but it was you know from my my perspective' a, a modern a modern approachable twist. Uh, um or no well, it was still a very expensive price fixed menu you know and um so it was intended to 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 wow, you know that was really the the, um, the intent, so at that time, you know, we had a lot of things on the menu that were traditionally French, um, but I'd say two of the things that I remember really well, well, three, that were like our best sellers at that time, mm. were um, I did a cold uh, lobster consomme that had a smoked tomato, kind of salad in it. So there was a, uh, and the, and then beautiful chunks of lobster, and it was all garnished with an herb salad, and it was really a beautiful tableau. You know, when you looked at it, and the, um, the consommé itself, because it was chilled, had a slight gel to it. So, I know that probably doesn't sound good, but mm. it has a, me. it has a texture that. It, it allows you to sort of...
0: It melts? Yeah.
1: I mean, if you... I wouldn't call it molecular gastronomy, but if you think about what people have done with foams and things that make, like, huge amounts of flavor in a very sort of dissipating kind of um, experience, it was a lot like that. And then you had this, the earthiness of these tomatoes that had been smoked with Herbes de Provence. And uh, so that was one of my... It was a real triumph. And I remember that one particularly well because I loved eating it as much as I loved making it, because mm. it was so technical. Um, That's was, always a
0: good sign, right?
1: Yeah, it was very technical, and it was really delicious to eat. But I also remember one night having Gerard in the restaurant as a guest. And I came to the table when he finished eating that, and he just looked at me. You know, there was an awe. Like, he pointed and he just said, you know, Eric, this... And he had no words. Like, this, this... And, 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 I, and I just... And again, this is a very long time ago, and that stays with me, because here is someone who I know is just, who devoted his entire life, a guy who trained as a young man with, uh, you know, uh, Paul Bocuse. I still have Paul Bocuse's phone number in a Rolodex, (laughs) just because I have it. Like, I've never called, or would never call, or, well, he's dead now, but... um, you know there's this you
0: can't get rid of that no
1: it's like it's it's a relic it's a thing that I'll you know mm-hmm. I'll cherish forever because I got it from Gerard mm-hmm. he's like if you ever need to call Paul I'll just I'm like, like yeah I'm going to call Paul <laughs> but uh it, so that so there was that there was um you know nobody serves veal anymore but we did a veal chop that was s- as thick as um, I don't know what is that for I yeah. around the we this is a, I guess there's a, a video here but it's it's a very thick you know, on the bone at the time, that so was like a very vi- like this. Yeah, it was really this veal chop in a, um, in just a beautiful array of wild mushrooms <sighs> that we got. You know, from people foraging. So it was. You know, it was not like. Rehydrated dried mushrooms or a powder or a mix I mean, it was real like, deal it was just and I and it was more about the mushrooms than the veal but there's mm-hmm. there's something about cooking a hunk of meat like that perfectly mm-hmm. and then putting it in a simple mm-hmm. sauce that and an accompaniment that just every bite just it, is just a delight and that was something diners really really loved and then the other thing that I always really loved was a black cod we had a, a black cod that I just simply seared in a pan, but we we served it in a um, in a beurre blanc of. Uh, well, actually, you know what? That's where the smoked tomatoes were. The smoked tomatoes were in the beurre blanc for my black cod. the uh, the The lobster consomme just had uh, a little tomato salad with the lobster. And that's gotcha. The lobster, um, but the and the, just that that smokiness of the of mm-hmm. the tomatoes and the herbs mm-hmm. in this delicate sort of – it wasn't uh, a – so there's there's two types of classic butter sauces. One is called a beurre blanc, which is where you make white it – White wine. White wine, right. And you know what else? I'm going to test you now.
0: <laughs> beurre blanc. Yes, I do. It's like – is it lemon or that's more
1: – No, but there's shallots. So you basically reduce – Oh, okay. You reduce tarragon and shallots and white wine yes. into sort of like a dry sort and of – And you just
0: add butter.
1: And then you – right. And then you add butter.
0: Until – it gets to this consistency right. that you want.
1: Right, exactly. So that's one. The other is called a Bermonté, which is essentially just, you can use wine, a lot of people just use water, and you know, seasoned water, mm-hmm. or a vegetable stock or something like that, or uh, any kind of, you know, fish fumet. And that's what we use. So a fish fumet is like a fish stock, a very light kind of fish stock. And uh, you basically just heat that, and then you just start whisking butter into it. Mm-hmm. And until you have this just light fluffy. So that's what it was, it was this, it was a smoked tomato burr monté, which went over this perfectly seared black cod. And if you, so black cod is also known as sable fish. And if you've ever had that, it's, it's like the fish itself is like eating butter almost. It's so unctuous and, and, and phenomenal. So um, those were, I think, three of my favorite dishes from the restaurant.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for that.
1: You're welcome. I'm going to just go on one more um, sort of voyage into the restaurant. So there was, because it was such a fancy restaurant, I was always reminiscent of my experience at Michelle Rostein, where we had the beautiful, priced fix, expensive, mm-hmm. you know, hot, haute cuisine restaurant on one side and the bistro. Little bistro. And their restaurant was called the Bistro da Côte, the Bistro next door. And so I said, I want a bistro next door. And the house was broken up into two halves. So I made a bistro next door. Awesome. And what's funny, not funny, is we ended up cannibalizing our own business. So people would come for their anniversary or special event or prom or whatever, and they would see my $110 price fix menu, and then they would see over here roast chicken for $10, and they were like, can we go over there? And so we ended up really, after a short Mm -hmm. time, we ended up closing the dining room, made it into a, a bar and lounge, and just kept the bistro open. And that was like the most amazing roast chicken the most amazing cassoulet, the most amazing bouillabaisse, the most amazing duck confit, the most amazing you know saucisson d'aille, the you know garlic sausage with with potatoes. I mean, just delicious. The food you the, you know that French bistro food. food. Oh yeah, unbelievable. So that was, and that's really, and that's where I truly found my joy was in in the in that in that restaurant. The it's fun. Yeah.
0: And there's like you said earlier, there's not that tension of maybe the plates have to be perfect. They just have to.
1: When you walk over to a table with an enamel pot Mm -hmm. with enough, cassoulet, for those of you who may not know, is a white bean Mm -hmm. stew and it's got confit duck, it's got sausages, it has, you know, all kinds of uh, delicious cured meats and tomato and It's November food, I call that November food. It's definitely November food (laughs) and it cooks On the back of the stove, if you do it traditionally, you know, a French traditional stove is a big, giant metal plate, and you kind of just move pots around. So this would sit on the back of the stove, and it just simmers. And there is a... People think you put breadcrumbs on it, but you don't. There's a crust that develops on the top, and you just kind of keep feeding the crust from the stuff that bubbles around the outside, and as it, it just develops this unbelievable... Caramelized, crusty top. When you drop that thing in the middle of a table for four people to dig into, there's no again. There's usually a gasp like, ah, "Wow!" And right. and that was the kind of reaction. And we did everything that way. You know, everything was in a big sort of mm-hmm. serving vessel and people just, it was about community and com- communal eating and eating together and sharing and laughing. And we had a wine list that had 20 wines on it that were all under $10. So the, the goal was really to come in, enjoy a bottle of wine, enjoy this, you know, several bottles of wine, enjoy <laughs> yeah, um, and enjoy a big pot of food together. It was really, those were great times.
0: You know, that that gasp, that, oh my gosh, this is the best roast chicken I've ever had, That as a chef and as cooks, that's the applause we get on stage. That is our, oh my gosh, this was an amazing performance you just gave me. There's nothing better to me than when I cook for someone and they just go, this is so good. That just, that just, that does it for me. You
1: know, one of my joys right now at the Manor is um, I have the pleasure of fielding all of the feedback from our residents, and there's a thousand of them. When I first took the job, I thought for sure my days would be spent fielding complaints and figuring out how to make people happy when they're in an impossibly unhappy situation. Like that's truly what I believe. What I was I that I was going to experience. When
0: did you take this job? You're because uh, you're fairly new.
1: October 17. Yeah. So not even two years. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, but that's not it. I mean. I'm very communicative and I try to be very responsive and I have a lot of great relationships with residents now that I'm continuing to develop with new residents and people really love what we do and they so appreciate not having to cook, not having to clean, not having to shop and I would say you know, const- what I would call constructive feedback, not even, you know, on, the, on some occasions we get complaints um, but it's generally something like, really mundane like Mm. I don't like your clam chowder like something like that versus (laughs) um, you know when we get a lot of constructive feedback like I really love this 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 and this it would be really cool if you could add that or do this or do that and um, that it's it's really a blessing man everybody has been incredible with sharing what their needs and their wants are and being patient for it to show up. So Beautiful. not what you'd expect, really.
0: So let's back up a little bit. Mm-hmm. You met your wife in Seattle?
1: Oh yeah, wow, we missed a whole chapter, trip.
0: Sorry, honey, we, that's missed, okay. we, I, we missed your that's, sweetie pie. That's because
1: we were talking about me. I, um,
0: <laughs> typical.
1: <laughs> typical is right. So where'd you meet her? I met her in my restaurant, actually. Um,
0: was we she a server?
1: No, okay. but her friend was. Okay. So, well, she was a server but in a different restaurant. Okay. So she worked at uh, a restaurant called The Foghorn, which is on the on Lake Washington in Kirkland, Washington. And her friend worked for me and there as well. Mm-hmm. And we had just started doing Sunday brunch and this friend of ours asked if she could bring some girlfriends in for brunch. Okay sure. We, hadn't, we weren't really doing a lot of brunch, so I was like, sure, anywhere, any way to get the word out would be good. So she comes in with three friends, I want, I want to say, maybe two. Might have been my wife and one other. And um, so the restaurant was, again, this is actually prior to the bistro and all of that. This is really when we were still fine dining. And um, the restaurant was like these little rooms in a house around a courtyard, a little outside courtyard. Mm. And so the The girls ate brunch, and I came out and said hi. And I then said, okay, well, you know, nice to meet you all. I'm going to go let the dogs out. I had two little pugs, Nathan and Fanny. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I went and let the pugs out in the courtyard, and they opened the door to the courtyard, and Lisa, my wife, says, you know, my dog's in the car. Would it be okay if I brought my dog in? Of course, you know, bring the dog in. Right, right. She has a pug.
0: Shut up. Yeah.
1: So the pug, she brings the pug in and the three pugs are, you know, it's a puggle and they're scurrying around and it's like, <laughs> oh my God, this is so cute. And she's adorable. You know, my wife Lisa is adorable. And
0: and uh, you're a rock star because you're the chef.
1: Whatever. And I then just say to um, our friend, hey, you know, your friend's kind of cute. And it was, Amelia. You want her number? And that right then I knew, I've been set up.
0: This was a set. This up. was a
1: setup. I've been set up. And uh, well, long story short, you know, we'll be married 20 years in August. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we, so we, yeah, know, we went, we we dated like people do, and we, our dogs, you know, we kind of created this trio of pugs, which we got known for everywhere we went, and then we met. Then when you know we were walking down, um, I hate to say that we got a dog from a, a pet store, but we did. We were walking down the main street in the town that the restaurant was in, and there was a little cute little red pug. Um, we had never seen a pug that color before, and uh, I'm like, oh, she's so cute. We really need one together. And of course, you so, need a
0: child together. So
1: right. So then we had now we had four pugs. Oh
0: my goodness.
1: <laughs> and then one day, on a wild hair, I was. Got access to a cute little black pug puppy, and I'm like, "Well, we don't have a black one, so I'm the numbskull who brought the fifth dog home." And it was, at one point, we had five pugs, and um, before we had any actual kids without fur, and uh, <laughs> so we were known as the crazy restaurant peak couple with, with the five, five pugs. pugs. And um, I can say this now because I don't own the restaurant anymore, but the pugs were always there at the restaurant, usually in my office in a big pu- you know pile in my pile but, of pugs. But we had these five milk crates set up. In the kitchen, Trish.
0: Uh oh. With
1: pillows. Call the health inspector. <laughs> yeah. And well, the kitchen. Yeah, remember the kitchen was like a giant house in and of itself. So it was very right. far away from where we actually did uh-huh. the prep. It was more kind uh-huh. of in the service lane <laughs> of where the of anyway. I won't justify it, but we had the dogs in the kitchen, and gang. everyone's and
0: we, fine. People ate there, and everyone's cared. Cared. fine.
1: Uh, well, like in France, you know, people are eating with their dogs in the in the restaurant. So and nobody cared. All of our that's emplo- where I want to be. All of our employees, you know, love them, and they and. Even, even customers that came in the kitchen always saw the dogs, and that was, like, one of the highlights, you know. Of course. Um, so Lisa and I – so Lisa basically left working where she was and came and worked with me, and she was the hostess and worked the front of the house mm-hmm. and, um, you know, did our wine purchasing and, and that kind of thing. We, we we're living that dream, you know, a couple running our business together, and it yeah. was it was really great.
0: How did the Rogue Valley Manor job pop into your life?
1: Well, well, we'll fast forward through a, a long chapter of fourteen years of working in healthcare. So, let's just say really quickly, the restaurant business, as much as I talk about it romantically and poetically now,
0: mm-hmm. is hard. It's brutal.
1: It's brutal. Yeah. And for me, the the only hard thing was I was responsible for people's payroll, mm-hmm. and I was responsible for paying my vendors. You know, and and when you're in business, what you don't know unless you're like a real swashbuckling entrepreneur is you always owe people money. Like that's kind of the nature of being in business. And I just, I wasn't comfortable with that. Like I wasn't comfortable always knowing that I owed people money. Mm -hmm. And um, that it, it wasn't for being, you know, we were successful, things were going well, but you know, it was still hand to mouth. We were still trying to like, okay, are we going to open another location? Are we going to try to expand in a way that really makes this super viable? Are we just going to grind every day ourselves? Yeah. You know, it would be nice to have someone else pay for health insurance now that we want to have a family. It would be, you know, all of that stuff. And um, I probably wouldn't have sold the restaurant, but it was another one of those twists of fate. A, a stranger walked into the restaurant one day and basically offered, well, wanted to be my partner to help me like spruce it up and bring it, make it more modern and I wasn't interested in that, so he offered to buy the restaurant outright and employ Lisa and I. So that's kind of what we did first. He turned out to be a complete numbskull and we ended up leaving that situation. But um, that's kind of, that was how the but restaurant your
0: responsibility sort of, was out at that point. Right,
1: and we were actually making more money, taking home more money than we were like yeah. as owning it. So it was good for the, a, a short period of time and then it got ugly and we dissolved that relationship mm-hmm. and off that's we went. Sad. But so I, I got a job, you know, and then I went looking for jobs. Mm-hmm. And I got a job working in a country club for a while, um, which was fine. Um, and then I, but my entrepreneurial spirit was kind of growing in me again. And I had a couple of opportunities to leave the country club and consult in a restaurant. And then um, there's a chocolate tier in Seattle called Dilettante, which you may have heard of. And they make truffles and all kinds of mm-hmm. delicious chocolates and cakes and whatnot. And they were looking to expand out uh, a brand of uh, as Starbucks was really blowing up. Right. they were trying to expand out into what they were calling the Mocha Cafe, and it was their version of Starbucks. And these were you know restaurants with grab-and-go food and and so on. And so they hired me to sort of develop that menu line for them and uh, and work with 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 growing that business and. Uh, I was excited about that, but again, you know, best laid plans and promises, that didn't really work out. And I was really looking for something, anything, to get out of that relationship, because I, they had a store in uh, on Capitol Hill in Seattle that, in addition to all of my other duties, I ended up managing, and would. I was literally working, you know, 18, 19 hours a day. Wow. So, because they were open till four in the morning, serving desserts. Mm-hmm. So, um, I had to get out of there. And so here I'm, you know, yes, I was looking in the paper, ladies and gentlemen. This is, there was still, you still look for jobs in the newspaper at that time. (laughs) I um, saw a job, executive chef for a hospital, Swedish hospital in Seattle. And I'm like, I can make meatloaf and mashed potatoes for a little while until I figure out what the next thing is. I'll get good benefits, you know, Uh all this. Okay. And frankly, I was already aware of Swedish's, um, uh, Reputation for excellent food because they were pioneers in the concept of room service in a hospital. So rather than just everybody gets a tray, this is where you call down, you order what you want when you want it. Okay. And I'm like, and I had actually been a patient there. I had back surgery a couple of years earlier, and I had experienced it for myself. So I'm like, okay, you know, I can actually make this work for a little, for a little while. 14 years later. Wow. Um, after a very illustrious career, I mean, I really never dreamed in a million years that healthcare would be my my path, but um, I just I found a community there that was incredibly innovative and supportive and really wanting to you know raise the bar of of what people experience when they're at their most vulnerable. For sure, um, the only thing they have control over is food. And this is an opportunity to really help people not only heal nutritively and sort of, you know, f- with with nutrition and, uh, and calories and, and the stuff yeah. that they need to heal, but also heal emotionally when they're in a hard spot or even full of joy, like having just had a baby, you know. A woman who's been in labor for thirty-six hours and hasn't eaten anything, and now wants a milkshake and a burger, and you know whatever mm-hmm. whatever the experience is for for those folks, or someone who is on cancer meds and just can't eat anything because nothing tastes good, and you know you work with them directly to find something that they can actually get some calories in so that they can feel better, and, and you make and them that enjoy. one
0: thing that they can actually eat. Yeah, That's exactly. So
1: I really, you know, lucky for me when I got that job, they weren't looking for someone who had a, all of the technical experience you need to work in a, in a hospital or in an environment that large, because um, that's not the experience I had. I was just someone with a culinary point of view and mm-hmm. uh, who liked to cook and was a good cook. Um, and that really, that was, you know, I had a, a mentor, the woman who hired me, fantastic human, Chris Schroeder, um, who basically said, we're you know, we're gonna take a risk, we're gonna do this, and we're gonna really raise the bar with what we do for our patients. And so I spent 14 years working with her and, and, and another incredible uh, director after Chris retired, uh, Candace Johnson, who, you know, it's all been about making sure we're, we're doing the best that we can and being innovative at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then a big part of that is also feeding the people who take care of the patients, right? So mm-hmm. the bulk of, of the work that we did is um, in our retail-facing side, our, our hospital cafeterias. And you know, you're feeding thousands of people a day who have a short break and they need good food and um, they need to get back to work quickly and they, and they really rely on you to keep them sustained throughout the day and without having to leave. And you have a captive audience and you know, if you're not keeping it new and fresh and innovative, um then it's it's no longer interesting and it it's no longer doing for them what it needs to do. So um I did that for many years and then uh when the ADA or Obamacare, not ADA, the uh
0: Affordable Care Act.
1: A C A, right, thank you. Um Obamacare came into came into play reimbursements changed and funding for hospitals changed and mm. long story short, which it's already a long story, sorry, um, <laughs> We services started getting cut and we were not really given the resources we need needed to, to sort of deliver on the promises we were trying to make and the things that we were trying to innovate. And I was losing steam in that acute care environment. Yeah, of course. And...
0: Did you start looking?
1: My phone rang. Oh. Well, I did start looking, actually. Um, so the organization I work for laid off a bunch of management-level people, people at my level, laid off 200 managers in a major, wow. in a massive layoff. So I was um, worried at the time and started sort of poking around. And that's when I met uh, someone who works at Pacific Retirement Services the company that um, owns the manor uh, for a job in Seattle where they were looking for a director of dining services for their Mirabella Seattle location. Okay. And at the time it didn't work out. Like It just wasn't a right fit at the time. Um, the executive director didn't, wasn't ready to take the jump. I needed more than I think that they were ready to, to dole out. And um, it just wasn't going to happen at that point. So like two years later, My phone rang.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: It was the same person I had met two years earlier who I interviewed with and said, I have an opportunity. I'm confident we can meet all of your needs. But there's a catch. It's in Medford, Oregon.
0: Did you go, where's that?
1: I absolutely said, where is that? I'm like, oh, Oregon, that's not too far.
0: It's right below you.
1: Yeah, but... (laughs) all the way at the other end of the state, you know, (laughs) basically California. So, um,
0: (laughs) how dare you, how dare I? (laughs) And
1: I, um, you know, we, it was one of those things where, you know, Lisa and I had to look at each other and go, well, you know, I was really unhappy at work. I was not feeling like I had anywhere to go, like I wasn't, there was no growth, there was nothing that was gonna ever, I was gonna always be there doing that job. I certainly wasn't gonna be able to necessarily get another job um, in the region, you know, supporting us in the way that we wanted to be supported. For sure. And and life in Seattle had become unmanageable in terms of cost, like just mm-hmm. everything was incredibly expensive, um, traffic was really had gotten out of control, and, Although we had a very wonderful, close-knit group of friends, we we felt like life was just, we were just sort of going through the so motions. So maybe
0: ready for a change then. So
1: maybe ready for a change. And that's kind of how, and that's exactly how we ended up. Okay. So,
0: here. well, welcome to Southern Oregon. Thank you. And you're doing wonderful things at the Rogue Valley Manor. We talked specifically about, you know, there's this idea of like what goes on up there, what you know what is happening, and and you said it's not ju- it's not this like nursing home vision that a lot of people have. It's a community, and you guys are feeding this community.
1: It is one hundred percent a community. I would say, you know, to say it's, re- I think I mentioned when we were taping for West Coast Flavors that it's resort living, and I don't want to overstate that. It's not like everybody's you know got their tennis sweater around their neck and sure. their, pre- but it it is definitely a community where people rely on each other. Uh, it's a sense of community. And, and the, ma- the majority of the communal experience is around food. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other activities that happen in pockets. There's lots of wellness activities and there's a gym and a pool and there's all kinds of exercise classes and there's lawn bowling and there's we have two golf courses. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. And it really truly is a, a amazing place. Uh, but there are also a lot of, very senior people that live there. So there's an element when you're walking around that you mm-hmm. are in a place where
0: people have come to where, end their life. It's the end of life.
1: It is. The, it is certainly the twilight of their lives, and nobody makes any bones about that. Right. I've talked to many people who say, "Yeah, this is the last place we'll ever live," and they're they're very clear about that. Right. And the cool thing about the manor, which I mean, this might be an opportunity to to educate, is. It is what's referred to as a continuing care retirement community, so a CCRC. And those are also being rephrased now as life plan communities. Mm -hmm. Uh, And essentially what this is is you come in as an independent, reasonably healthy person, uh, somewhere in your late 60s, early 70s, and you live out the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And in one place is access to all of the health care for the most part, that you'll ever need mm-hmm. um, and we will care for you in your independent vital life and give you all the access to all the things that you want in that aspect of your life and we will also be there for you at the end of your life when you need that type of care and and everything in between so that is the appeal to people who live there
0: yeah sign me up
1: yeah I mean really it's it's I can't think of a better way to That's really I agree Put you know live out the last that last chapter of your life.
0: So we are we are we're getting to the end. We have to wrap up a little we're bit. We're wrapping. Okay. Although I feel like we could just chat forever. We could. Eric, I'm gonna say this about you. You, I feel like people. There are people in this world. You probably have some in, in your circle that are so charismatic and so just fun. You're drawn to them. You want to be around them. You are that in my book. You well, have thanks. You have buttloads of charisma.
1: I'd say the same thing about you.
0: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But, that's because we're but that's babies. That's why
1: you're on TV. <laughs> <laughs> Only when
0: they allow me to. Um, and
1: that's why they felt conf- confident enough to put me in front of a thousand people who could, who, if they wanted to, could really make everybody's life miserable. Right. I'd say, you know, if nothing else, you know, it, my greatest success right now, I would say at the matter, is my ability to communicate with, with residents in a way that makes them feel connected to.
0: Perfect. yeah. I think that's what most people are looking for in life, just mm-hmm. to be heard and, yeah. and to be connected. Um, so we are going to wrap up a little bit, get to the final three. But first, you, uh, meaning your chefs at the Rogue Valley Manor, have said, yep, we're doing it. Oregon wine experience coming up in a few weeks. Um, we're all going to meet under the big white tent. Medal celebration. This is the night where... That's we, our night, Trish. Yes. We give out awards to those winemakers who have won something from the Oregon wine competition that was just recently held. And you guys have said, yeah, we'll feed everybody and feed us fancy stuff, real fancy. Why did you decide to go all in? Because no other culinary partner is um, coming in on Metal Celebration Night. It is just the chefs from Rogue Valley Manor.
1: Well, you know, I could come up with some really great uh, <laughs> story about why we've chosen to, to go all in. Um, you know, I'll just call it naive a because of my, my newness to the to the area and not really knowing the event to be honest Mm uh we just i it was an opportunity to work with asante but i didn't think of any other when i thought of like well we could we could do this or we could do that it never really crossed my mind like well we could participate in this way or that way i just said let's you know you're looking for people to cook that night we'll do it
0: let's just do it we cook
1: for a thousand people you know we make a few thousand meals a day every day anyway. Like, this is
0: chump change.
1: And Well, not really that, <laughs> and, but, but honestly, for me, and I really want people to, to recognize Rogue Valley Manor as, uh, as a highlight of this region. Mm-hmm. So I want when people who live here, certainly, when they look up at those buildings on the hill, which we can all admit are not that beautiful, they, they don't go, is that a psychiatric hospital or, you know, is that the VA? <laughs> you know, I want them to unmistakably know what's going on up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of doing that is community outreach, not just within our community, but outside of our community. Mm-hmm. And I, I just want an understanding of what a great place it is to live. You know, we have a goal to be the employer of choice in Medford and, I, and not just – in the culinary arts, although I certainly want anyone who works in the culinary arts to want to work with us because, you know, unlike an independent restaurant or a chain restaurant or something of that nature where you're doing the same thing over and over again, we do every kind of cuisine, every type of event from, you know, barbecue to fine dining. We run the gamut on a daily basis. As a young culinarian, I mean, you have an, you have access to a variety of of culinary technique and different types of foods and different types of cuisines that you would mm-hmm. never have working in a single restaurant. So it's really a great opportunity to get it out to get out there. Um, so that that was really my my un my underlying motive was that awesome. I wanted to be more recognized by people in our community.
0: And what better way to get some recognition than through people's stomachs? Right. That's and how of you course, win it with me. I,
1: I, let's also not forget, it is for the Children's Miracle Network, and we're it supporting is. Asante and all of their great work. So I don't yes. want to, I certainly don't want to underscore that, but um, selfishly, it's, it's about recognition. Well, I can't <laughs> wait to see you
0: on Thursday. I'll definitely be there for Medal Celebration Night. Um, and if you do want some more information about the Oregon Wine Experience, all you have to do is go to OregonWineExperience.com. You can find all you need to know there. You can also get tickets and then come see. The Amazing Chefs on Thursday night.
1: We'll all be there. It'll I'm be so exciting. excited.
0: I'm so excited. Okay. Final three, mister. Best advice you've ever been given.
1: Huh. The best advice I'd ever been given. I labored over this one because there was a couple. So Gerard, the guy I bought the restaurant mm-hmm. from, <laughs> the restaurant was right next to a produce stand on the on the road. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I bought the restaurant, I said, Oh, this is so great. I'm going to have like all this fresh produce right next door. And his advice to me was, you don't go in. All that crap on the outside of the building they're about to put in the dumpster, go make them a deal on that. So buy crap and turn it into gold. Those are his exact words. (laughs) And I said, okay, Uh, thank you for that advice. on the one hand, you know it's funny, but there was an element to that. I mean, there was perfectly good produce I could turn into some really beautiful stuff. But
0: That um, you did turn w- into beautiful with stuff with
1: the right te- with the right technique. Yeah. Um. But, and I always felt a little bit, you know, like uh, this is, you know, this is great. That was great advice from Gerard. Um, but really, the best the best advice I ever got was from my mother, and. I know it was really good advice because I've heard it many, many times since as a professional going through all kinds of leadership development and all mm-hmm. kinds of, mm-hmm. so it was really interesting. The first time I heard it, I was sitting in some kind of leadership development class at my previous job, and I'm like, my mother told me that when I was, you know, in college. And it was, I was very frustrated about whatever, something that I was frustrated about. It. And it had to do with someone else's um, behavior. Somebody had done something and was behaving in a way that made me uncomfortable and made me angry. And she said, you cannot control how other people act. Mm. You can't control what they do. You can't control how they make you feel. Only you can control that. Yes. And I have really, really tried to live my life that way. Not that I haven't had an outburst or two since then, but I really have... That has really been my mantra, is that I cannot control what happens around me. I can only control how I
0: react to it. Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for that one, Mom. Uh, so this is kind of an interesting question because you sort of just got here. Um, but looking at Southern Oregon, that you've been here for, for this long, if you ever left, what would bring you back here? What oh, would you miss?
1: The smoke, totally.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the smoke, that makes me so sad.
1: Well, you know, it's, it's really, it is sad. It I, is. Um, Because, as you say, you stated, I've only been here a short time. I I honestly do not have anything yet. I mean, there's more stuff I have outside of Medford that I want to seek out, you know, that I miss, Mm -hmm. than I have here that I would miss. But something I have taken up that was, um, that I had not taken up before is golf. Okay. And I have great access to golf because of where I work. Yes, you do. So... I would come back for the golf. <laughs> we have a lot of nice
0: golf courses here. Yeah,
1: the golf here is great. And mm-hmm. um, I'm not good at it, but I really do love it. I love being out there. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's true what they say about golf. You just need one good golf shot in a round. It just keeps drawing you back. But, Beautiful. Um, that would be my thing right now.
0: Okay, right now. Well, I'll check back in with you in maybe a couple years. Yeah, that'd
1: be, I'm sure I'll okay. have something else by then.
0: Let's hope so. Uh, final meal, final drink. What would that look like, sir?
1: So I'm going to... I really thought long and hard about this because there's all kinds of um, childhood and emotional kind of food, food that I learned how to cook and food that I ate along the way in my life. But there is one food when eaten with reckless abandon is so satisfying. Um, And if you have never done it, if you've never had it and you've never experienced this, you're not gonna know what I'm talking about. But when I was a young person in my 20s in New York, mm-hmm. in the 80s with more money to burn than we knew what right. to do with, <laughs> we would go, us, very cosmopolitan, you know, cosmopolitan 20-somethings, to a place called Petrosian, which is a very, very fancy Russian vodka and caviar champagne place all they sell is caviar and we would get a big giant bowl of caviar and we would you know savor it but you know it was enough to where i mean you get a big mouthful of really really, and i'm talking about the really really good stuff the stuff that is ridiculously expensive not stuff that you can probably just get your hands on at the supermarket or whatever Mm um there is a sense of opulence and freedom and enjoyment that comes out of just recklessly eating this expensive food that is without compare. And so when we got married, when Lisa and I got married, that was one of the things we did is we put out these giant tins of expensive caviar and I did the same, th- so the, the last time I did this was on my wedding day, which was gonna be 20 years ago. Hey, I think I just had an idea for my yeah, 20th anniversary. Yeah, I was just
0: gonna say, write that down.
1: Um, so I would say that um, a really, really excellent champagne mm. with an unlimited... Because now we're talking about my last meal. Yeah. So I'm on my deathbed, right? Like, yeah. I don't have to worry about nutrients. You
0: can worry uh, about nothing. I'm going
1: to die after I eat this. I just want to fill my uh-huh. mouth and belly with um, with unbelievably excellent um, caviar and like a bottle of Cristal. That would probably be my. Oh. And I know that sounds so cliche and so... Opulent, but it's truly, it truly is like so liberating to just with with reckless abandon enjoy two of the finest quality items on earth to eat.
0: So caviar, just I mean, help me here, because. Like caviar, like with a spoon, like just...
1: Yeah, I could eat okay. it with a spoon. I totally could. Now, I mean, most people, you'll put some egg, you put it on a toast point, maybe yeah. a little chopped egg or some onion or whatever, but right. I'm telling you, Trish, you go into the thing with, with a mother of pearl spoon.
0: <laughs> Grab uh, that bottle oh and oh just God. glove.
1: I, I'm hearing myself say all this and I'm like, oh my who, the people are like, who is this guy? What kind of numbskull what a fancy pants guy Uh. fancy pants New York guy I'm telling you I'm I'm really I like Top Ramen just as much by the way Mm. but it's like there is a well not just as much but I will tell you you if, you, know, if you've never done it and you have the opportunity, I strongly suggest.
0: Do it. Yeah. Also, it's your last day, so screw what everybody else thinks. Exactly.
1: you're true. True that. I yeah. don't care about. No, that's right. my last day on earth I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna relive my opulent youth. And <laughs> gorge myself on caviar.
0: Um Dr. Eric Eisenberg, you've been so fun. Thanks for doing this with me.
1: Thanks, Trish. thanks for letting me go on and on about myself. It's really. My favorite subject.
0: Okay, well, it's now my favorite subject. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. You can also hear us on Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Check out the video portion at ktbl.com Just click on Features and then Off Script. One more time, the Director of Dining Services at Rogue Valley Manor, Eric Eisenberg. I will see you Metal Celebration Night at the Oregon Wine Experience.
1: Can't wait.